What a harrowing and tough three days for Robert. I'm Roger and this is Book Shook and today's podcast is all about the second half of For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway, published in 1940. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book in two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and yours, hopefully, on the first half of the book, maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month. We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book or you can do neither. And just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there probably will be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Maybe you have thoughts you want to express about the book that I've missed or there's something in the podcast you agree with or really disagree with. I'd love to share your experiences in the next episode. Welcome to Bookshook. So this podcast is all about the second half of For Whom the Bell Tolls from chapter 19 on page 266. I'll just quickly recap the questions I had at the end of the first podcast. Will Yerkin's brother-in-law be found? Will anything get in the way of Maria and Robert's love? Will Maria continue to thrive? Will the bridge-blowing operation go successfully? And what did Pilar see in Robert's hand when she read his palm? And ultimately, will Robert kill Pablo like Raphael said he should. So continuing the narrative, Robert is discussing Kashkin and whether he could see his own fate. Remember, he was shot by Roberto when injured to save him from capture, which he was very much fearing. Robert doesn't believe in superstition, but Pilar, the gypsy, says, quote, he saw his fate clearly and that is how it happened. And Pilar goes on to recount how a matador foresaw his death and she says, quote, Do not doubt what thou simply cannot see nor cannot hear. Thou canst not hear what a dog hears, nor canst thou smell what a dog smells, but already thou hast experienced a little of what can happen to a man. She describes the smell of death to Fernando. Quote, Part of it is the smell that comes when, on a ship, there is a storm and the portholes are closed up. Put your nose against the brass handle of a Scrooge-type porthole on a rolling ship that is swaying under you so that you are faint and hollow in the stomach and you have a part of that smell. She then goes on to describe the remaining parts of the smell of death and Robert remains very sceptical. The snowstorm that they had passes and Robert makes a bed and waits for Maria to join him. And this talk of smells makes him think of the different smells around him. Quote, The night was clear and his head felt as clear and cold as the air. He smelled the odour of the pine boughs under him, the piney smell of the crushed needles and the sharper odour of the resinous sap from the cut limbs. Pila, he thought, Pila and the smell of death. This is the smell I love. This and fresh cut clover, the crushed sage as you ride after cattle, wood smoke and the burning leaves of autumn. That must be the odour of nostalgia, the smell of the smoke from the piles of rate leaves burning in the streets in the fall in Masula. Which would you rather smell? Sweet grass the Indians used in their baskets, smoked leather, the odour of the ground in the spring after rain, the smell of the sea as you walk through the gorse on a headland in Galicia, or the wind from the land as you come in toward Cuba in the dark. That was the odour of the cactus flowers, mimosa and the sea grape shrubs. 
Or would you rather smell frying bacon in the morning when you are hungry? Or coffee in the morning? Or a Jonathan apple as you bit into it? Or a cider mill in the grinding? Or bread fresh from the oven? He must be hungry, he thought. And he lay on his side and watched the entrance of the cave in the light that the stars reflected from the snow. What a wonderful evocation of smells that he remembers. Maria arrives barefoot through the snow. And she says, quote, We will be as one animal of the forest and be so close that neither one can tell that one of us is one and not the other. Can you not feel my heart be your heart? And I'm thinking, they must be both freezing. It's snowing. Especially leaving the warmth of the cave. The description goes on to say, quote, In the night he woke and held her tight as though she were all of life and it was being taken from him. He held her feeling she was all of life there was and it was true. Now when chatting about making love they use the metaphor of death. Sex and death are strongly allied in this novel. A fascist patrolman appears on horseback in the morning and Robert shoots him dead. He worries that the patrol may follow his tracks to their cave, so they plan to ride the horses elsewhere so that the tracks are covered. Maria, at this point, also professes her love for Robert. The men that Robert's with have a machine gun, but they haven't been trained to use it. They set it up in case they are discovered. And Robert thinks about how the bridge operation will go. Raphael, the gypsy, appears with two hairs. He had left his watch, which infuriates Robert. And then they set up a watch in case the cavalrymen find and follow the tracks. Four fascist cavalrymen appear. They've been following the tracks, but luckily they don't shoot at Robert's band because they're following Pablo's tracks. And following these four are another 20 cavalry. Robert instructs Anselmo to report on all the road movements. He wonders whether Pablo will be caught. And Augustine says... Quote, if he were not of great ability, he would have died last night. It seems to me you do not understand politics, Inglés, not guerrilla warfare. In politics and this other, the first thing is to continue to exist. Look how he continued to exist last night and the quantity of dung he ate both from me and from thee. They reflect on their hatred for the fascists and Augustine tells Robert that he cares greatly for Maria. Robert explains why he's been so bold with Maria and not courted her in the usual manner. Quote, For the Maria and me, it means that we must live all our life in this time. Augustine declares he will faithfully follow Robert's orders. They hear gunfire in the distance and Sordo is under attack. Augustine wants to aid them, but Robert says, no, don't do that. Primitivo, on the higher watch, also wants to help. Robert says, quote, they are lost. If we go there, we are lost too. Pilar appears and is confident that Pablo will, quote, never be seen. And I'm thinking I wouldn't be quite so sure of that. There's some planes that fly over again, causing great fear. Pilar and Robert agree that the hares Raphael caught should be eaten sooner than later. Robert doesn't feel good about his situation or their situation. Robert believes Sordo's attackers are waiting for air support and at 3pm it comes. Pilar gives him the papers from the cavalry man that he shot. They are touching personal letters and Robert is quite reflective at this point. Quote, Do you think you have a right to kill anyone? No, but I have to. How many of those you have killed have been real fascists? 
very few, but they are all the enemy to whose force we are opposing force. But you like the people of Navarra better than those of any other part of Spain. Yes. And you kill them. Yes. If you don't believe it, go down there to the camp. Don't you know it is wrong to kill? Yes. But you do it. Yes. And you still believe absolutely that your cause is right? Yes. He goes on. Listen, he told himself, you better cut this out. This is very bad for you and for your work. Then himself said back to him, you listen, see, because you are doing something very serious and I have to see you understand it all the time. I have to keep you straight in your head because if you are not absolutely straight in your head, you have no right to do the things you do for all of them are crimes and no man has a right to take another man's life unless it is to prevent something worse happening to other people. So get it straight and do not lie to yourself. Now these competing voices in his head are so well characterised. He goes on to think about his love for Maria. Quote, All right, he told himself, thanks for all the good advice. And is it all right for me to love Maria? Yes, himself said. Even if there isn't supposed to be any such thing as love in a purely materialistic conception of society. Since when did you ever have any such conception, himself asked. Never, and you never could have. You're not a real Marxist, and you know it. You believe in liberty, equality, and fraternity. You believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hearing that split personality really reminds me of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings again. His actions seem cold and logical, but his mind is racing. Continuing the narrative, we're now with El Sordo fighting at a hilltop with Jochen and Ignacio. They survived the attack and killed many fascists. They're now trapped on the hill. Sordo wonders whether a mortar will kill them or they will send planes. Quote, if one must die, and this is Sordo thinking, and clearly one must, I can die but I hate it. Dying was nothing and he had no picture of it nor fear of it in his mind. But living was a field of grain blowing in the wind on the side of a hill. Living was a hawk in the sky. Living was an earthen jar of water in the dust of the threshing with the grain flailed out and the chaff blowing. Living was a horse between your legs and a carbine under one leg and a hill and a valley and a stream with trees along it and the far side of the valley and the hills beyond. Isn't that just the most beautiful writing? All those things that make life worth living. Continuing on, the fascists taunt El Sordo and his men on the hill and ask him to surrender. Sordo lies in wait for them behind his dead horse. And then the captain asks his lieutenant to investigate, but he refuses. So off goes the captain, taking, as Sordo sees it, a, quote, voyage to death. Quote, and this is El Sordo thinking, Look at him walking. Look what an animal. Look at him stride forward. This one is for me. This one I take with me on the trip. This one coming now makes the same voyage I do. Come on, comrade voyager. Come striding. Come right along. Come along to meet it. Come on. Keep on walking. Don't slow up. Come right along. Come as thou art coming. Don't stop and look at those. That's right. Don't even look down. Keep on coming with your eyes forward. Look, he has a moustache. What do you think of that? He runs to a moustache, the comrade voyager. Ultimately, Sordo kills the captain, but then the planes come and bomb the hilltop. Jurkin, El Sordo and Ignacio die. We move back to Robert's camp. Maria tells Robert that Pilar has given her, quote, instructions. 
Berendo loads his cavalry away and mourns the death of his comrade Julian. War is brutal. There really are no winners. Hemingway sensitively explores the feelings of both sides of this conflict. Primitivo is upset that they didn't help Sordo, and Robert reiterates that they couldn't have helped. Anselmo prays for courage. Now, religion was banned by the Republicans. It has been argued that Hemingway is critical here for the Republicans not allowing any spiritual solace. When Anselmo sees Fernando, Fernando says that the fascists have no dignity and Anselmo is cynical. He sees that war has no dignity on either side. Fernando says, quote, What barbarians these fascists are. We must do away with all such barbarians in Spain. He stopped, then said bitterly, In them is lacking all conception of dignity. Anselmo grinned in the dark. An hour ago, he could not have imagined that he would ever smile again. What a marvel that Fernando, he thought. Yes, he said to Fernando, we must teach them. We must take away their planes, their automatic weapons, their tanks, their artillery and teach them dignity. Exactly, Fernando said. I'm glad that you agree. Anselmo left him standing there alone with his dignity and went on down to the cave. Anselmo reports the troop movements for Robert and Pablo, who has returned. Remember, the bridge blowing is tomorrow. Robert writes a letter to Galtz, his general, advising that the bridge blowing be stopped. But Robert realises the letter is probably too late and the job will have to be done. Robert recalls his grandfather's gun and throwing it in a lake after his father uses it to commit suicide. This is a very, very sad and moving scene. I hate guns and it's so interesting how such a horrible item is often couched in beautiful language about its storage and handling. Listen to this, quote... It had the softest, sweetest trigger pull you had ever felt, and it was always well-oiled. It was kept in the holster with a US on the flap in a drawer in the cabinet with its cleaning equipment and 200 rounds of cartridges. Their cardboard boxes were wrapped and tied neatly with waxed twine. Maybe the reason that it is couched in this beautiful language is in some way it disempowers the weapon or it's used to justify its existence in the world in some way. He's upset that his father didn't stand up to his bully of a mother and he resolves that the bridge blowing will happen and this comforts him since there is no indecision anymore. Robert soothes Maria and tells her what it will be like in Madrid after the bombing of the bridge and Maria tells of her horrific capture and the shooting of her parents. Quote, I saw both of them shot and my father said, Viva la Republica, when they shot him standing against the wall of the slaughterhouse of our village. My mother standing against the same wall said, Viva my husband, who was the mayor of this village. How tragic is that? Maria says that Pilar thinks they will die tomorrow and he reflects on whether a life can be lived in three days. Quote, you weren't supposed to live forever. Maybe I have had all my life in three days, he thought. If that's true, I wish we would have spent the last night differently. But last nights are never any good. Last nothings are any good. Yes, last words were good sometimes. Viva my husband, who was the mayor of this town, was good. He knew it was good because it made a tingle run all over him when he said it to himself. He leaned over and kissed Maria, who did not wake. In English, he whispered very quietly, I'd like to marry you, rabbit. I'm very proud of your family. 
Back at Gaylords, Kharkov is concerned that a German commander has been talking about Robert's offensive and perhaps putting him in danger. There's also news that the fascists have been bombing themselves near Segovia, and that news comes from the communist orator La Passionara. Kharkov plans to join Galtz for the offensive. Going back to the cave, Pilar wakes Robert at 2am to tell him that Pablo has stolen some explosives and charging caps. Quote, we'll improvise, says Robert. And I really hope Pablo is not planning on blowing up their camp. Andre delivering Galtz's message reflects on how the eve of battle reminds him of the eve of the running of the bull at his village. And Robert rages over Pablo stealing dynamite and the exploders. And then we have another lengthy internal monologue full of vile language. Robert offers Maria, quote, sleep as his wedding ring to her. He knows, we know, he's going to die. And that was one of the questions that I didn't ask at the end of the last podcast that I should have. Will Robert die? Andres gets to Galtz's post, but I'm thinking, will the delivery of this message scupper the bridge-blowing operation altogether? Maria and Robert make love for the last time, perhaps, and it's an incredibly moving passage. He's trying to show the physical and mental emotions of lovemaking in his text. After this scene, we have a scene with Pilar where she says that she didn't actually see anything in his hand when she read his palm and that all will go well. Continuing the narrative, Pablo suddenly appears. He says, quote, I had a moment of weakness. I went away, but I am come back. Good old Pablo. I knew his heart was in the right place. Am I wrong to think that? Robert is pleased that Pablo has returned and Andre continues to deliver the message to Galtz. And I'm thinking, uh-oh. The plot is going to turn on this, perhaps. Robert repeats his instructions to Pilar. Quote, Thou understandest that there is to be no attack on the post until thou hearest the falling of the bombs. And after the destruction of the post, you fall back onto the bridge and cover the road from above and my left flank. No one should make a move, nor fire a shot, nor throw a bomb until the noise of the bombardment comes. Very, very specific instructions. So if this operation is called off, there won't be any falling of bombs, but it might leave Robert's party exposed. Or they all might survive and live happily ever after as a plot twist, because I'm really seeing doom ahead. Robert says goodbye to Maria, and it brings back feelings and memories of childhood. He and Anselmo make the final preparations before taking action. Then Andres is still desperately trying to get his message to Goltz. He gets to speak to an old commander called Andre Marti. And there's a wonderful description of this commander Marti. Quote, The tall, heavy old man looked at Gomez with his outthrust head and considered him carefully with his watery eyes. Even here at the front in the light of a bare electric bulb, he having just come in from driving in an open car on a brisk night, his grey face had a look of decay. His face looked as though it were modelled from the waste material you find under the claws of a very old lion. I love that description, the claws of a lion, a very old lion. He ends up imprisoning Andres and Gomez as well, who's travelling with him. They're told by a guard that Marty is, quote, crazy. Finally, with Kharkov's intervention, Robert's dispatch reaches Galtz, but it arrives too late. The bombers have been sent, and Galtz reflects that they may not get their surprise attack. Quote, 
As he watched the planes almost up to him now, he felt sick as his stomach, for he knew from having heard Jordan's dispatch over the phone that there would be no one on those two ridges. They'd be withdrawn a little way below in narrow trenches to escape the fragments or hiding in the timber. And when the bombers passed, they'd get back up there with their machine guns and their automatic weapons and the anti-tank guns, Jordan said, went up the road and it would be one famous balls up more. We go back to Robert and it's the morning of the operation. He seems to have finely attuned senses now. Quote, Robert Jordan lay behind the trunk of a pine tree on the slope of the hill above the road and the bridge and watched it become daylight. He loved this hour of the day, always, and now he watched it, feeding it grey within him, as though he were a part of the slow lightning that comes before the rising of the sun, when solid things darken and space lightens and the lights that have shone in the night go yellow and then fade as the day comes. The pine trunks below him were hard and clear now, their trunks solid and brown, and the road was shiny with a wisp of mist over it. The dew had wet him, and the forest floor was soft, and he felt the give of the brown dropped pine needles under his elbows. It feels somewhat ominous, this text, as if he is sucking all knowledge of the world in one last hurrah, as if he foretells his own death once more. Robert spies a squirrel as he's watching a sentry postman through his binoculars and it leads him into that split personality thinking again. Listen to this. Quote, Robert Jordan looked down through the pines to the sentry box again. He would like to have had the squirrel with him in his pocket. He would like to have had anything that he could touch. He rubbed his elbows against the pine needles, but it was not the same. Nobody knows how lonely you can be when you do this. Me, though, I know. I hope that Rabbit will get out of this all right. Stop that now. Yes, sure. But I can hope that I do. That I blow it well and that she gets out all right. Good. Sure. Just that. That is all I want to know. That is all I want now. Now, remember, Rabbit is his pet name for Maria. He shoots a guard at the post one side of the bridge and he hears Anselmo shoot the guard at the post on the other side. Then he scrambles onto the bridge to set the explosive, constantly talking to himself. Fernando is wounded and Anselmo reflects on killing a man. Quote, I hated the shooting of the guard and it made me an emotion, but that is past now. How could the Inglés say that the shooting of a man is like the shooting of an animal? In all hunting, I have had an elation and no feeling of wrong. But to shoot a man gives a feeling as though one had struck one's own brother when you are grown men. And to shoot him various times to kill him. Nay, do not think of that. That gave thee too much emotion and thee ran blubbering down the bridge like a woman. The bridge is blown and Anselmo is killed by shrapnel. Poor Anselmo, I liked him. Robert is furious with Pablo that Anselmo wouldn't be dead if he hadn't thrown away the detonators because they had to use grenades. And when Pablo returns, it appears he has shot his men to save the horses. Robert breaks his leg in the retreat when a mortar is fired at him. So this is very, very sad goodbye to Maria. He says, quote, I will go with thee wherever thou goest. And then Robert is left alone and he talks to himself. It's all very moving. He contemplates suicide, but thinks, quote, and if you wait and hold them up even a little while or just get the officer, that may make all the difference. One thing well done can make. All right, he said, and he lay very quietly and tried to hold on to himself that he felt slipping away from himself as you feel snow starting to slip sometimes on a mountain slope. And he said, now quietly, then let me last until they come. Any chance to help his friends, he never gives up. 
He feels integrated now. He is approaching death and feels at one with the world. He hears Officer Berendo coming on horseback and positions his machine gun so that he may shoot him. Quote, He was waiting until the officer reached the sunlit place where the first trees of the pine forest joined the green slope of the meadow. He could feel his heart beating against the piney of the floor of the forest. And there the novel ends. Right to the last sentence, Robert has not given up. So initial thoughts, I've learnt so much about the Spanish Civil War by reading this book and how to be sympathetic to two sides in a war. And it makes me absolutely hate, hate war. It's just a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. I really enjoyed getting inside Robert's head, the constant internal monologues and the effort to describe the sensation of making love using just a few words, really the outstanding parts of the narration. I enjoyed his progression from wanting to keep Maria very much out of the operation to finally really integrating her and accepting her as part of his work. I would definitely recommend the book to someone interested in finding out more about the Spanish Civil War and anyone who's interested in beautiful descriptions of the natural world and poetic writing. I'm really getting inside the minds of these fascinating characters. Some ideas that cropped up in the second half. We have that whole life being lived in a short span. Again, Rob is constantly thinking about that. Here's a quote from halfway through the second half. I know a few things now. I wonder if you only learn them now because you are oversensitised because of the shortness of the time. There is no such thing as the shortness of time, though. You should have sense enough to know that, too. I have been all my life in these hills since I have been here. And Selma is my oldest friend. I know him better than I know Charles, than I know Chubb, than I know Guy, than I know Mike, and I know them well. Augustine, with his vile mouth, is my brother, and I never had a brother. Maria is my true love and my wife. I never had a true love. I never had a wife. She is also my sister, and I never had a sister. And my daughter, and I never will have a daughter. I hate to leave a thing that is so good. He finished tying his rope-soled shoes. They all wear these rope-soled shoes. It's kind of a symbol all the way through the novel of just groundedness, but also poverty. Can you imagine walking through snow in rope-soled shoes? It must have been very uncomfortable. We have those two sides of Robert chatting again, as I mentioned, in this sort of schizophrenic, golem-like way. Before the bomb blowing, there's a wonderful passage. Quote, He grinned at Maria again, but the grin was still no deeper than the skin that felt tight over his cheekbones and his mouth. She thinks you're wonderful, he thought. I think you stink. And the Gloria and all that nonsense that you had, you had wonderful ideas, didn't you? You had this world all taped, didn't you? The hell with all of that. Take it easy, he told himself. Don't get into a rage. That's just a way out too. There are always ways out. You've got to bite on the nail now. There isn't any need to deny everything there's been just because you were going to lose it. Don't be like some damned snake and a broken back biting at itself. And your back isn't broken either, you hound. Wait until you're hurt before you start to cry. Wait until the fight before you get angry. There's lots of time for it in a fight. It will be some use to you in a fight brilliantly showing the tension and competing thoughts of Robert. He even admits it to himself when he's talking to himself. Listen to this. Quote, 
And you, he said to himself, I'm glad to see you getting a little something back that was badly missing for a time, but you were pretty bad back there. I was ashamed enough of you there for a while, only I was you. There wasn't any me to judge you. You were all in bad shape, you and me and both of us. Come on now, quit thinking like a schizophrenic. One at a time now. You're all right again now. But listen, you must not think of the girl all day ever. And then we have that section where he's thinking of Maria as he's looking at the sentry post. Do you remember this bit? He rubbed his elbows against the pine needles, but it was not the same. Nobody knows how lonely you can be when you do this. Me, though, I know. I hope the rabbit will get out of this all right. Stop that now. Yes, sure. But I can hope that, and I do. That I blow it well and that she gets out all right. We also have that idea of when characters express feelings of love. It's often wrapped in other locations. So, for example, Pilar thinking of Finito in Valencia. And we also have Robert and Maria when Robert's telling Maria about Madrid and how they're going to have some time together. Quote... We'll be much in that room, in that hotel. There's a wide bed with clean sheets and there's hot running water in the bathtub. There are two closets and I will keep my things in one and thou wilt take the other. There are tall, wide windows that open and outside in the streets there is the spring. Also, I know good places to eat that are illegal but with good food and I know shops where there is still wine and whiskey and we will keep things to eat in the room for when we are hungry and also whiskey for when I wish a drink and I will buy thee manzanillad. Everything is out out in a different location to create that wonderful memory of love. We've got the idea of the poor training of the Republican fighters. The knowledge of their machine gun was tragic. Listen to this. Quote, We've made a study of taking it apart and putting it together on the table in the cave. Once we had it apart and could not get it together for two days, since then we have not had it apart. And that's Augustine speaking. There's also an interesting idea that cropped up, which was the othering of the enemy by Robert Jordan. And it happened a few times. Here's an example. Quote, The leader turned his horse directly toward the opening in the rocks where the gun was placed. And Robert Jordan saw his young, sun and wind-darkened face, his close-set eyes, hawk nose and the overlong wedge-shaped chin. Such physical descriptions, othering of the enemy. And we've already heard that a enemy doesn't look any different to any other enemy when Kharkov is forced to poison the Russian soldiers in part one. Another idea that's all the way through is superstition. The gypsy believing that Kashkind could see his fate, for example. And also, remember Robert's hand. Listen to this about Kashkin. This is Pilar. Quote, in the case of this Russian comrade, he was very nervous from being too much time at the front. He had fought at Iran, which you know was very bad, very bad. He had fought later in the north, and since the first groups who did this work behind the lines were formed, he had worked here in Estremadura and Andalusia. I think he was very tired and nervous, and he imagined ugly things. Robert responds with, I believe that fear produces evil visions. He continues... Seeing bad signs, one with fear imagines an end for himself and one thinks that imagining comes by divination. I believe there is nothing more to it than that. I do not believe in ogres, nor soothsayers, nor in supernatural things. And then we have that lovely idea of a whole life condensed into a few days. The whole book is a huge condensation. It only takes place over a few days. All, what, 400 and 500 pages of this book takes only three days 
I think it's probably the most condensed book I've ever read. And remember Roberts saying, quote, For the Maria and me, it means that we must live all of our life in this time. There's some very dated thinking as well, quite sexist thinking from both Anselmo, as I've already mentioned, and Robert. I'd like to talk a little bit about May's book, The Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay, which is 277 pages long and it was published in 2020. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to page 140, which starts the chapter or paragraph, I need a rinse under the tap. I read an article about the book in the newspaper and it sounded a lot of fun, just what I need after this Hemingway. I don't know anything about McKay. Having a quick read of the front cover of the book, though, it does say the following. Quote, Laura Jean McKay is a writer and a lecturer in creative writing at Massey University in New Zealand. Her debut novel, The Animals in That Country, won the 2021 Victorian Prize for Literature and the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction. I am going to read the first few pages and give you my initial impressions. I can see the wild in her. She looks and acts like any dog, plays, wags, stares into my eyes with her baby browns, does chasey, catch, begs for biscuits. Then the dust comes and she lifts her neck and howls the saddest song in all the world. And there's that wild. Dingo. Owl, night thing, that sound is a warning. Loneliest you'll hear. Wraps around your face, your sleep, your dreams. She's saying, hey, hey, there's something coming. The rangers here are always telling me, don't talk like that. They say how dingoes are just establishing territory, checking on their pack. Dingo admin. They stand on the hot road that runs from the gift shops to the enclosures and listen to the dingo in her cage call out to the pack on the other side of the fence. Tell me that's not special. Tell me she doesn't know something about the world that you and me haven't ever thought of. One. Everyone wants to see the wild ones. Dingoes, crocodiles, stingrays, maybe a snake. That's what they ask for when they come to the park. We've got wallaroos with striped faces and fat bums. We've got quolls and sugar gliders crouched in dark tree hollows. We've got a bird of prey show we do in the morning before the kids get screamy and the dads get yelly. We've got water birds and a lizard that'll eat out of your hand. End of the day, tourists just want to stare into the eye of a four-metre croc, hold a blonde python, then sit on the zoo train with the breeze in their faces while I chug them on down to the back of the park to where we keep the dingoes. Afternoon, ladies and gents. I'm Jean Bennett, and I'm a guide here at the park. Look to your left there, and you'll see a little house in the bush. See those twigs? Blue plastic. Bower Bird made that to attract his sweetheart, thinking of getting him to do at my place. Most days you'll find me driving the zoo train, sturdy old girl that runs on electrics. A few years back, they talked about replacing us guys with an automated driver, a plastic man who sits in the driver's booth, moulded in the same ice cream colours as the seats. Did a survey and 9 out of 10 visitors said they liked the real guys better. One even mentioned me. Management had to stick that in their pipes and smoke it. At the dingo enclosure, I ease the train to a stop and turn on the radio. The tourists pile out and stretch their legs like it's the end of a road trip. Newsreaders talking about those poor suckers down south where I'm from. Barely winter and they've already got the same flu. Won't respond to antibiotics or anything. I remember that. Being sick and sick to death of the rain and the cold. From where I sit up here in the driver's carriage with my knees in the late sun, I can see the dingoes before the tourists do. At first, it looks like there's nothing in there, just the fenced-in enclosure of low, scraggly trees, rocks and piles of dirt. 
then movement. The tan earth grows, takes shapes, the ding goes along in the colour of sand, manila folders, their length buckles out at the ribs and then rises high, almost as broad as a greyhound but prettier. Long, curved legs and a feather-duster tail, a springiness, a mustiness, dust and hair, the tourist edge forward. I've got three paper bags jammed in the glove box next to the medical supply kit. One has my sandwiches, I've got low blood pressure now. One sloshes, one has dog biscuits. The tourists practically skip over the dingo enclosure with those biscuits. Dingoes, they holler. Look, Jason, dingoes. The dingoes bunch back by the fence alarmed. We're not supposed to call them dogs, not Canis familiaris, your normal domestic dog, but Canis lupus dingo, made out of wolf. All the info signs say they're more like cats, tree climbers, hyper-agile fur police. A whisper to us is normal talk to them, and they can hear a thing coming before the thing even knows it's on its way. Then one of the tourists throws a biscuit and it's business time. Half of the chow ends up in the moat for the fish, half in the dingo's bellies. Those tourists love feeding the dingoes, and the dingoes love getting fed. Mr. the big male grinds his paws into the dirt and dips his head low, keeping his rear and tail high, the play position. Those tourists should be flattered. They laugh and say, "Who's a good boy. Kids nag dad for a dingo pup until dad looks like he might go drown himself in the moat. The other dingo boy, Buddy, springs up a sheer boulder and moves down the other side like he's yellow water trickling downstream. The tourists lean in. A woman lifts her baby high to sea. This is noted with alarm. Everything is. Dingoes aren't love drugged or bored like your golden retriever. You can't pop them in the backyard and expect them to be there when you get home from work. They'll jump clean over your fence, be out ripping up chickens, finding a pack before you can blink. And there we go. First few pages. I don't know a huge amount about dingoes. I'm going to have to Google a dingo. I'm really interested to see if they look more cat than dog or not. Some interesting comments about people. For example, dad's shout, a kid's nag, and mum's holding up babies. I mean, you know, I'm sure I'm just being very picky. But um, I hope we don't have too many kind of gender stereotypes. Anyway, (laughs) and an interesting comment there about the pandemic that could be happening in the South. Mm, Topical. I'm looking forward to it. I've just been to Longleat Zoo and it was great. And I always think about what it must be like to actually look after animals at a park. And maybe this book will help me see another side to that. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. The email is bookshook at yahoo.com or you can leave a comment on the Bookshook YouTube channel. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. I look forward to discussing the first part of The Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay at the next episode of Bookshook on the second Friday of May. That's the 13th of May. And you'll be reading up to page 140. See you then. (laughs) 